Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You sit as a jury of 100 to render impartial justice. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presided as the Chief Judge. At this time, I will administer the oath to all senators in the chamber in conformance with Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6 of the Constitution and the Senate impeachment rules. To be sure that no vote would be party, you take an oath three times to render impartial justice. One is a group. So help you God. Then as individual. Ms. Mikulski. And then third, you go into the well and you sign a book for all of history where I hereby, Barbara Mikulski, U.S. Senator from Maryland, do pledge to render impartial justice on the matter of impeachment. Wow. You know, your hand shakes with that kind of historical and immediate commitment. Don Ritchie, U.S. Senate historian emeritus, we've asked you to come spend an hour with us to give us uh, some perspectives on the Senate's role in the impeachment process, looking back at history to guide us what might happen ahead. Senator Mikulski talks about how important this felt as a United States senator, the job that they were doing. As a as a whole, as this process gets underway, how should the public think about impeachment? Is it a judicial process? Is it a, a legal process? Is it a political process? Put it in the largest context. Well, it's all three of those. Uh, it's really a judicial process uh, spelled out very specifically in the Constitution as to what the role of the Senate and the House are in the process. Uh, a little bit more vague as to what the charges can possibly be. Uh, but also the penalty of being removed from office by a two-thirds vote in the Senate. Uh, on the other hand, the Senate is a political body, and absolutely everything in the Senate and the Congress has some political dimensions to it. Uh, the taking of the oath and the signing of the book is to remind the senators that it's not everyday politics. It's something different. It's something a little higher than that. And certainly having the chief justice presiding over the Senate adds a certain degree of gravity to the proceedings. What level of federal officials can be subject to impeachment? 
any civil uh, uh, officer of the federal government. There's some question as to whether or not a legislator can be impeached. The, the House once impeached a U.S. senator back in the 1790s, but the Senate had already expelled him, and so they thought it was moot to hold a trial. His lawyers argued that uh, because he was a senator, he was exempt, but uh, there's no necessary precedent on that. Uh, on the other hand, both houses of Congress can expel a member by a two-thirds vote. If you look back in our country's 244-year history, impeachment has been at least explored uh, in the public sphere for 14, sorry, 15 out of our 45 presidents. Only three of them have been impeached, and one, of course, Richard Nixon, resigned. What should the lessons be from those numbers? Well, during the Clinton impeachment, Senator Byrd gave a speech in which he described the uh, impeachment as a sword of Damocles that hung over the head of every president. In fact, every officer of the government needs to know that they're not above the law, that there is a, a constitutional method for removing them from office. Even a judge, a federal judge who has a lifetime appointment, can be removed, and certainly even the President of the United States, if they have committed a crime that convinces a majority of the House and two-thirds of the Senate that, uh, that they're guilty. We're going to be looking back in history because precedent guides so much. And uh, to get that started, I'm going to have you do a, just a quick primer on the three presidential impeachments that the country has lived through. We're going to use a video for the first one from C-SPAN's special on the, uh, the Congress. It is the 1868 impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Let's watch a little bit of that. The impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson was an absolute sensation. It was for the Johnson impeachment trial that they first issued gallery tickets for the Senate chamber. This was the first really public trial that took place. If you look at publications of the day like Harper's Weekly and Frank Leslie's Illustrated and stuff, they're just full of wonderful illustrations of the Sergeant Arms delivering the articles of impeachment to the White House into Johnson's hands. You have all of the lawyers lining up into the chamber to, to make their cases to pro and con in impeachment. And, and it's really sort of the society event of 1868. He had gone against Congress in reconstruction policies. They had considered impeachment over and over and over and finally in, eight, in 1868 he did something that gave them an excuse for impeachment and that was that he fired someone without uh, gaining authority or gaining the permission to do so from Congress. That was the voice of Betty Coed, the current Senate historian. Uh, what should we know about the Johnson impeachment? The Republican House and Senate, a Democratic president, 11 articles of impeachment. What else should we know? Yes, well, actually, um, Johnson was elected on a ticket with Abraham Lincoln in 1864. He was a Democrat, a senator from Tennessee. He was one of the only Southern senators who didn't secede with his state. And so Lincoln had a sort of a war party, a unity party, in 64 and brought him on the ticket. When, he, when Lincoln was assassinated and Johnson became president, the Republicans in Congress thought he was going to be their ally because he was pretty much down on the southern states, and, and they thought he would support them in terms of Reconstruction. But he disillusioned them very soon. He vetoed major legislation like the Freedmen's, Freedmen's Act. He didn't seem to be concerned about the former slaves of the South. Uh, he, uh, uh, he just put himself up as an obstacle to the Reconstruction of the South. And that went on for from 1865 until early 1868. And even though Johnson's term was coming to an end that year, 
the uh, House Republicans uh, rose up and impeached him. They impeached him first, and then they actually went back and drew, drew up an articles of impeachment as to why they were impeaching him. They were just so mad at him at the time. And they thought they had a very good chance to have him removed in the Senate because more than two-thirds of the senators were Republicans. Now, the Republican Party was divided between its radical wing and its moderate wing, but essentially Johnson had united them uh, because they were also offended by his policies. Uh, but it went into the Senate. Uh, uh, seven Republican senators could not bring themselves to vote to remove him. Uh, and I think the, the general sense was that uh, Johnson's term was coming to an end. Uh, as Horace Greeley said, give him enough rope and he'll hang himself, essentially. Uh, and also, if you remove him, you will have uh, grievously weakened the presidency, and that presidents of the United States will always be dependent on a majority in the Senate, a, a bit the way prime ministers in Parliament are always dependent on having a majority in Congress. The independence of the presidency was, was threatened. And so Johnson was saved from removal by a single vote in the, in the Senate. It took all the way until 1974 for the next serious impeachment effort against Richard Nixon, Democratic House and Senate Republican president. And they got so far as the House Judiciary Committee voting out three articles of impeachment before the president resigned. What else should we know? Yes, I was a graduate student here in Washington at the time, and Watergate was just fascinating. And I remember going to hear John Dean testify at the Watergate Committee, and I also went over to sit in on the House Judiciary Committee when they were voting. And it, the, there was a great sense of solemnity to it. Uh, this was really a serious issue. A serious investigation was underway. The two political parties were very different at that stage. Both the Republicans and the Democrats had liberal and conservative wings. So President Nixon actually had a lot of opposition from liberal Republicans, and he got a lot of support from conservative Democrats. Uh, and so it wasn't clear uh, where, what his uh, status would be. As the House was voting, however, as the House Judiciary Committee was considering this and voting, the Supreme Court ruling said that the uh, Nixon tapes had to be opened. And uh, one of the tapes made it pretty clear to pretty well anybody who listened to it that President Nixon had was part of the cover-up uh, to hide the crime that had been committed. So it wasn't so much the crime that was committed, the breaking into the Democratic conference uh, uh, headquarters, uh, but the fact that the president had uh, authorized pay payment of hush money to the the burglars and had done everything possible to obstruct justice after that. So even some of President Nixon's strongest supporters in the House uh, backed away and said that they would support impeachment. And eventually, a group of senators went up to the White House, led by Barry Goldwater, who had been the Republican candidate in 1964, and Goldwater advised President Nixon that he did not have the votes in the United States Senate to, su to sustain himself in an impeachment trial. So uh, the president then chose to uh, to resign rather than face a trial. Senate didn't know he was going to resign, and they had actually spent quite a bit of time writing rules and getting ready for to hold a serious impeachment trial. So it was uh, 25 years later, 1999, uh, Bill Clinton faced impeachment, a Republican House and Senate Democratic president, and the House voted out two articles of impeachment, perjury and obstruction of justice. Trial began early January, just mm -hmm. like we are right now. Uh, what else should we know about Bill Clinton's impeachment? Well, it happened at the very end of uh, uh, the Congress uh, in the House of Representatives. The House Republicans had actually lost votes in that election. 
there was somewhat it wasn't clear what they were about to do. They didn't actually have a big investigation in the House. They depended on the um, uh, the report that was done by uh, Kenneth Starr into, into the whole Clinton uh, issue, and. Um, it suddenly was thrust on the Senate. Uh, I remember there was a long feeling in the Senate, uh, people sort of holding their breath, hoping it wouldn't come. Uh, and in fact, uh, we in the historical office have been doing a lot of research, and we got the word from on high uh, that it would be better not to make any public statements about this. And I think pretty much everybody in the leadership uh, positions of the offices of the Senate got the same thing. They were waiting to see, hoping against hope that the House would not uh, go ahead and do this. And they did at the very end of that Congress. In fact, when they got ready to send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate, the Senate was adjourned already. There was nobody there except the Secretary of the Senate uh, to receive the impeachment uh, proceedings. And then uh, they began the trial in January, but it took a long time for them to decide how to go about doing it. They went back and they looked at the rules from 1868. And they also dug out the rules that had been devised in 1974 when uh, they thought they were going to hold a, a, a trial of President Nixon. And I had actually done an oral history with Floyd Riddick, who is the parliamentarian of the Senate, and he spent a lot of time talking about how they would have held the President Nixon's trial. They even went so far as to put cameras in the galleries long before C-SPAN uh, because they felt they could not hold an impeachment trial if the public did not have an opportunity to watch. Uh, and then, of course, they were three judges in the 1980s who'd also been impeached. So the rules had been revised and brought up to date. But still, this was a unique situation with the presidential impeachment, and they were going to have to meet first before they went into public session. They were going to have the senators were going to meet privately to try to work out those rules. So, a couple quick questions after listening to that. This is the first then of the presidential impeachments before a divided Congress. What's the import of that? Well, as I say. Politics is always a part in all of this. And even though the senators take an oath to be impartial, they can't forget what their party is. They can't forget who the president is, which party he belongs to. Uh, there's definitely going to be a lot of support among senators for a president of their own party and a lot more opposition from senators from the opposition party. Uh, they have to, the House managers in particular, have to convince people that this is a criminal act, not a political act and that it rises to the level of what the Constitution defines as, as an impeachable offense. Uh, and that was, that's been true regardless of which party controlled which House. Actually, I have to say, in 1999, the Republican and Democratic leaders worked together remarkably well. Senator Lott and Senator Daschle wanted the Senate to look good. They wanted it to look more substantial than the House had in its actions. And they worked together, and there was a lot more bipartisanship than I think anyone uh, thought was possible. That uh, closed-door, unique, uh, joint, bipartisan Republican-Democratic conference in the old Senate chamber actually produced agreement, and they voted 100 to nothing on a set of rules. wasn't all the rules. They, uh, as Senator Kennedy and Senator uh, Phil Graham of Texas came to the conclusion that they didn't have enough uh, agreement to get to home plate, but they did have enough agreement to get to second base. So they would write the rules to get to second base, and once they got to second base, they would write the rules to come home. 
So this is a, probably a related question. In 2020, unlike 74 and 99, is a presidential election year. So what does that do to the process? Well, in each of the cases of previous presidents who were impeached or about to be impeached, they were in their second terms. And certainly President Nixon and President Clinton were uh, constitutionally unable to run for a third term. Uh, so it was not going to affect their elections. Uh, it certainly might affect their vice presidents uh, and what would happen to them. But uh, this is the first time we've had a, a, an impeachment of a president serving in his first term and who is a possible candidate for re-election. Uh, we don't know what the, how the public will react. Uh, President Clinton in 1999 saw his popularity go up. The public thought that he was being unfairly treated, and uh, he actually came out of impeachment with a better standing in the polls than before. Uh, it's not clear that, would, that that would work again, but certainly uh, you can't count in advance exactly what the public reaction is going to be. We're going to let the Constitution guide the rest of our conversation, starting with the most broad a designation of powers uh, to the two bodies by the Constitution. So let's look at what the Constitution writes. Article 1, Section 2, the House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment. And Article 1, Section 3, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. Uh, what was the thinking of the founders that the impeachment stayed in the people's body? The, the House initially was the only part of the government that was directly elected by the people. Uh, the president was elected by the Electoral College, still is. Uh, the senators in those days were elected by their state legislatures. And so it was a sense that the people's body, the people's house, should decide whether or not someone uh, should be impeached. And impeachment is a form of indictment. It's like a grand jury, essentially. Uh, and then they would go to the Senate uh, to hold the trial. But the Constitution specifies that the senators must vote by two-thirds to remove someone from office. Now, the Constitution uses two-thirds on a number of occasions. That's for ratifying treaties and for uh, overturning vetoes. Uh, they wanted supermajorities in certain cases so that it wasn't strictly just sort of a one-party action, uh, that uh, you, had to, you had to prove your case. You had to convince enough senators to get, get on board. And so that meant that uh, you had different requirements and different standards in the House and the Senate. And quite frankly, uh, in the last 200-some-odd years, a partisan or party-line vote in the House has never produced a bipartisan vote in the Senate. Uh, if there's a party-line vote in the House, there'll likely be a party-line vote in the Senate. The exception is when we've had several federal judges, they were overwhelmingly uh, condemned in the House by more than two-thirds of the House members. When it came to the Senate, they heard the evidence, and a large enough two-thirds majority of senators voted to remove those judges from office. So uh, the, the numbers are different in the House and the Senate, but they're, they're, they're certainly an impact. So we saw how broad the language is in the Constitution, and since the House voted in late December to impeach the president, we've been seeing a standoff between the two leaders, the two bodies, uh, with Speaker Pelosi and, and Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, what leverage do, does each body have over the other in this process? Well, uh, Senator McConnell the other day basically said they have no leverage. Uh, and I think the Senate in general has never felt that the House had leverage over it, and the House has never felt that the Senate had leverage over it. They're in a position to frustrate each other. 
You know, the House regularly passes bills that never go anywhere in the Senate. Uh, and there are lots of instances where House members really are very perturbed about the Senate, but there's not much they can do about it in that case. Uh, the, right now, the, we're in a sort of twilight zone in between. Uh, and part of this is because, well, the Constitution is actually more specific about impeachment than it is about most things. It doesn't say everything, and it, does, it leaves this question as to, well, when will these uh, articles of impeachment be presented? How, you know, to whom, how? Uh, all that's worked out. In the past, it's gone pretty quickly. In fact, as I mentioned with the Clinton trial, it went so quickly that the Senate wasn't even in session uh, when the articles were sent over. Uh, this is something for the leaders of the two houses to, to wrangle with each other about. I'm, I'm not sure I would use the word leverage, but uh, I do think that uh, uh, it's a tactic that the, the speaker is using in this case. And in, in one way, it, it uh, stopped uh, a very quick trial from being held in December, which was what was intimated by the Senate at one point. So uh, perhaps that's its largest impact is to uh, is to stretch the, the proceedings out. But certainly there are things that the um, House managers want to be able to do, and they want the rules of the Senate proceedings in some, to, to satisfy them. Interestingly, back in 1999, the House managers assumed that because the Republicans were the majority in the Senate, that they would naturally write the rules to favor them. And they didn't. They wrote very fair and impartial rules. House managers were furious. They, they uh, talked about having to climb up to Mount Olympus to come over to the Senate because the Senate was treating itself much more aloofly. Well, since the current wrangling is over the rules, and you, you uh, told us that in 1999 it was really the same process, we have another video clip, and this is of two former senators who were in office during the Clinton impeachment, Senator Dodd of Connecticut, Senator Santorum of Pennsylvania, and they talked about that wrangling. Let's listen. One of the most important meetings that Rick and I had were in the old Senate chamber, uh, Trent Lott, Tom Daschle organized, no staff, no family, just the 100 of us in that room. Several days, I forget how long it was before the actual trial began in the Senate. But we decided there that we were on trial, too. And we needed to conduct ourselves fairly well. The country was watching, the world was watching how we do this, in a sense, not to mention the American public. I think, to, to Chris's point, I feel very proud of the fact that we, we found a middle ground. It's not everything the House wanted in, in, in a trial, and it wasn't everything that the Democratic base wanted, which is to just, you know, don't give any, any, any kind of recognition to what the House did, just, just vote it out and vote it down. And so, again, that, you know, people say, oh, it's so contentious now. It was contentious then. I mean, it was a, it was a very, very difficult time. But leaders, this is really the point, leaders were able to step forward and lead and, and get their caucus to go along with it. So this time we're hearing that it may be a party-line vote on the rules that govern the impeachment. What's the difference? Well, I think the, there was a great sense of relief when the Senate voted, or the senators came up unanimously with a set of rules. Uh, they were talking about the dignity of the Senate, and it was the appearance of what they were doing. And, of course, if you vote on a party-line vote, it, it reminds people that it's a partisan institution. Uh, Senator Byrd was... Uh, the most concerned of any senator about the image of the United States Senate. Uh, he actually spoke at the beginning of that closed-door session in the old Senate chamber about why impeachment was so important and so serious and why senators had to 
uh, read the oath that they had taken about being an impartial juror and take that seriously. Uh, he gave a, an impassioned speech at the beginning of that uh, of that session, and that helped, I think. And senators cited that uh, in part when they're reaching that agreement. But about midway through the trial, Senator Byrd issued and surprised everybody by putting up a motion to dismiss the case. And everybody thought, well, maybe he's doing this to protect President Clinton. Senator Byrd said, oh, no, I'm doing this to protect the United States Senate. He said, uh, what we're getting lately in the mid through the trial is dueling press conferences by the two parties, and we're beginning to look as partisan and as, as rough as the House of Representatives. Uh, he deplored the polarized politics, uh, and that was the gesture. The Senate voted down the motion to dismiss, but it sort of got people back into the the seriousness of the trial as well. So let's underscore that point, because we're already seeing reports in the press that someone could move to dismiss right at the beginning, but it would have historical precedent. Yes, and it, they have to consider what the public reaction would be. So um, a couple of other questions specifically. Once uh, Speaker Pelosi transmits the articles of impeachment, what is the House's process going for? What's their role? At that point, the House become the managers of the bill. They will send over several uh, House members to argue the case. Back in 1999, uh, Henry, uh, uh, Henry uh, Hyde. Hyde, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, uh, thought that his House legal counsel, uh, the Judiciary Committee's counsel, could make the case. And our office, the historical office, the parliamentarians, the library, the Congressional Research Service, we all researched on behalf of the leadership. And none of us could find any instance where anybody other than a member of the House of Representatives had made a case on the floor. And so the House had to change its tactics and strategies. And the, the seven, I think, uh, House members each made uh, presentations. They have, the House has 24 hours, uh, had 24 hours to make its, its case, then the president's lawyers would have 24 hours to make its case. But essentially, it's down to the managers of the case representing uh, the will of the House of Representatives. And one of those managers in 1999 was Lindsey Graham, then a House member from South Carolina, now Senator Graham, and have uh, been very outspoken on this process. Altogether, there are 27 members of the United States Senate who were in office. Is that number surprising to you? What's surprising to me that it was just 21 years ago, and so many senators, 63 senators, are, have, are, are new to the Senate. Uh, this, was, this shows how quickly the Senate seats are turning over these days, as I would suspect a much larger percentage of senators in 1999 had actually been there in 1974, 20 years before. The, the people tended to stay longer. Uh, but it's a, this is a very new process for uh, the majority of senators, the great majority of senators. Uh, for the others, it's here we go again. They've, they've been through that process. They know how arduous it is. Senators have to spend a lot of time sitting in their seats and being quiet, which is not what U.S. senators really like to do. Who defends the president? The president chooses his defense. He could, of course, come himself, but president's lawyers have uh, strongly advised him not to come because uh, uh, you don't want to inflame the situation. And so presidents stay away, and they send up their legal counsels, their lawyers, and they can be a mix of people. Perhaps I think the, the greatest speech given in the 1999 trial was given by a former senator. Uh, it was Dale Bumpers, who had just left the Senate a 
you know, a few weeks before, uh, and was brought back because he had been a senator from Arkansas. He'd worked closely with President Clinton, and he gave just a magnificent speech that helped President Clinton and helped the uh, the Democrats, I think, to stay united uh, on this case. It was also a very funny speech. You wouldn't think that there would be great humor in the midst of a very serious trial, but uh, Senator Bumpers had a, just a wonderful Southern sense of humor, and uh, uh, he issued that a famous line in the middle of it that he said, H.L. Uh, Mencken said, when people say it's not about money, it's about money. And he said, and when they say it's not about sex, it's about sex. If, pe if you've intrigued people, I would invite them to find the C-SPAN video library and they can watch Senator Bumper's entire speech in that process. Uh, Majority Leader McConnell has really declared his position on this trial and his intent to dispose of it quickly. And we also have learned that he has been meeting with the White House to walk them through the stages of the trial. Does that have historical precedent? Well, in the case of uh, Andrew Johnson, of course, he uh, didn't have any support uh, among the majority party. Uh, but he and had, there was no majority leader back then, right? No, there were no majority leaders, although there were some senators who were more equal than others who took the, took the lead. Uh, but certainly uh, Johnson had uh, uh, supporters among the senators that he con conferred with. He had lobbyists who were coming up uh, regularly talking for him, uh, who trying to coordinate his side of the story. Uh, as I mentioned, Senator Daschle worked very closely with Senator Lott to keep the, the proceedings fair and impartial. But, of course, the Democratic leadership was in contact with the Democratic president about what was happening and keeping them informed as to what's going on. Uh, you can't remove the politics from the process, even though it, it is also a judicial process and even though they will take an oath to be impartial. Once the trial gets underway, do the two party leaders have any specific role? Uh, the majority leader will continue to make motions occasionally to suggest that they need to take a recess or to suggest when they'll be coming back, uh, and he'll be rising occasionally as well. The other senators are not to speak. In fact, they, they send written questions up to, the, uh, to be answered. Uh, but so the majority leader has an occasional uh, reference. Uh, uh, I remember in 99, at one point, Senator Lott uh, uh, tried to adjourn for the day. And Chief Justice Rehnquist, who I think was getting a little impatient, said, no, he wanted to continue longer. Uh, and uh, Senator Lott realized that as majority leader, he was now second to the uh, presiding officer in, in what was going to be decided. One detail on that motion to dismiss. It, would it be a simple majority vote or uh, a supermajority? Uh, uh, There's no filibustering in the, in the, inside the, the, the impeachment. Uh, and so it would be a simple, any vote it would be a simple majority vote. So, Except the, the final vote, which has to be a two-thirds vote. We've heard uh, known about the, the impeachment process since the middle of the fall. When did the Senate start getting ready this time? I can't say for sure, but I would say that the last time around, uh, people were getting ready uh, long before it came to the Senate. As soon as it became clear that the House was about to act, everyone in the Senate began preparing and I would suspect that, uh, again, the parliamentarians, the historians, the librarians, and the Library of Congress uh, were pretty fully prepared to answer any questions that senators, especially the majority leader and the minority leader, would have. And that was our role in the last time, was answering questions, thousands of questions, inside the Senate and also from the media and from the public. 
but so I'm sure that they are they're fully prepared for whatever is going to happen. But their main role, these the parliamentarian historians, would be communicating with the majority and the minority leader's office because those two are going to be negotiating the rules. Exactly, and of course the senators would contact us as well. Um, the, sen the senators understood this was a very historic moment, and so they had questions. I remember one senator on his way to a press conference actually called us from his car because he was concerned about a question that he thought was going to come up, and he wanted to make sure that he got the answer correct when he uh, when he got there. So uh, although uh, in the Senate in general we all tend to uh, uh, respond mostly to the leadership because they're in charge and they're the ones who are calling the shots. So uh, back to the Constitution, and we have talked about this uh, a, a bit, but uh, when sitting for that purpose, uh, of the, that purpose being impeachment, the Constitution says they shall be on oath or affirmation, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. I'm going to go back to video and listen to the oath that the senators take. This was from 1999. At this time, I will administer the oath to all senators in the chamber in conformance with Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6 of the Constitution and the Senate impeachment rules. Will all senators now stand and raise your right hand? Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of William Jefferson Clinton, President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, so help you God? The clerk... The clerk will call the names and record the responses. So a question. Every single member of the United States Senate takes an oath when they take office. Why is there a special oath for this? Uh, well, the Constitution requires a special oath, and it requires a, that it be different from, its, from the oath that they take. The Constitution, the Constitution only spells out the oath that the president takes. Uh, the oath that the Cong Congress takes uh, is a note that Congress itself has written and other officials do. But, the, um, but there's a sense that this is something different. It's not a legislative day. It's, uh, you, you know, your presiding officer is not there. You're supposed to send a Thurman, the president pro tempore, stepping aside and the chief justice of the United States presiding. Uh, so this is to remind everyone that they, this is not a the daily political business of the Senate. Uh, it is a trial, and they are, in a sense, senator jurors. They're... They're not completely jurors, but they're not completely senators. They are both, and they have to keep that in mind, and this is one way of, of uh, trying to impress it uh, on them. We already talked about the two-thirds uh, majority needed for the conviction vote, but so people following the process, any other vote that happens along the way in the trial is a simple majority. Right. And they will also, there's a possibility that they might take a vote to bar the person if he's been removed from office. They could uh, vote separately to bar them from ever holding office again. Uh, they, um, uh, they, they haven't done that consistently. In fact, there's one member of the House of Representatives right now who was impeached and removed as a federal judge and then went back home and ran for Congress and is still serving in Congress. Back to the Constitution, and we've already seen this in the video clips, it says that when the uh, President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. This is different than when other officers are impeached. Uh, a question, is this the only time we've got the President on trial, 
tried by the members of the House, with the jury being the Senate and presided over by the Chief Justice. Is this the only time in our governing process that all three co-equal branches function together, together in this way? Well, you know, they come together for State of the Unions and for inaugurations and for funerals. Yeah, all uh, ceremonial. You know, right. Uh, and there are occasions when um, the um, president will nominate a Supreme Court justice, and uh, it may be that the vice president will be sitting up to get, to break a tie on on the vote. Uh, but those are all, those are uh, you know sort of more routine situations. This is the one time where uh, they, they they cross the line. You know, the Constitution. Uh, forbids anyone from serving in more than one branch of the government at the same time, with the sole exception of the vice president, who is the president of the Senate. And, you know, so it was a long question as to whether he was part of the legislative branch or the executive branch. Vice presidents have sort of migrated away from the legislature down to the executive. But uh, other than that, uh, we have separation of powers. And so to have the chief justice come across the street... Uh, with his ceremonial robe, which Chief Justice Rehnquist doctored up with gold stripes, he was impressed apparently by a Gilbert and Sullivan uh, performance uh, and decided that he needed a little more pizzazz. Uh, but uh, uh, he um, he came over to preside, and he had written a book about the Andrew Johnson impeachment trial. He was extremely well versed in what uh, they had done in 1868, and he kind of thought that's what they were going to do, and he was going to play the same role that uh, Simon P. Chase has, had played as chief justice. The parliamentarians of the Senate had to explain to him that things had changed in the Senate in the century between the, then and now. And they said, you know, um, the presiding officer of the Senate is not a powerful position. The Senate is much more is ruled from the floor rather than from the chair. And in fact, the parliamentarians advise the presiding officer on what to say and what to do. They even can turn off his microphone when they're trying to tell him what they can do. Uh, and uh, if he was to deviate from that, he could be voted down by a simple majority by the Senate. And Chase was voted down on a couple of instances. Chief Justice Rehnquist pondered this and realized that they were right. Uh, and then he uh, performed very well uh, as presiding officer. Uh, he got into the spirit of what he could do and what he couldn't do. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and got very high marks from the senators. Afterwards, he apparently said, I did nothing, but I did it very well. So uh, just going back to the point of the vice president being a member of the Senate, did Al Gore sit in on the trial in 1999? Uh, no. Uh, the vice president, of course, uh, could preside over the Senate on any other occasion, except that, of course, if you remove the president, the person who's going to benefit is the vice president. And so uh, that's the reason why the chief justice, rather than the vice president, presides. Uh, for vice President Gore did not attend the, uh, the proceedings. Uh, in the 1868, however, the president pro tempore of the Senate was a senator from Ohio named Benjamin Wade. Uh, and he would have become president if they had removed Andrew Johnson, because there was no vice president. Johnson had moved from the vice presidency after Lincoln's assassination. They didn't have a provision to elect a, a vice president then. And so this, the president pro tempore of the Senate was next in line. And he was there, and he was very active, and he voted in the whole thing. A lot of people thought that he should have recused himself. Uh, but Ben Wade really wanted to get Andrew Johnson out of office, uh, and he would have benefited the most by it. So uh, with regard to the chief justice, if any of the, the uh, senators object to the rulings he makes, what's the process? 
they can object, and then uh, there can be a vote, uh, just as there is on any other occasion. The clerk will take the call the roll, uh, and if a majority vote against him, then the ruling of the chair will be overturned. We Another little act of symmetry, Chief Justice Roberts in 1999 was a clerk to Chief Justice Rehnquist. Now he's responsible for presiding over this trial. Has the Supreme Court told us anything about the preparation that they are making and the Chief Justice is making for this? Not really uh, that I know of. Um, he certainly is very aware of what happened the last time. Uh, the Senate went out of its way to make to accommodate Chief Justice Rehnquist. They provided a room. It was the president's room just off the Senate chamber for him to go to to take breaks. Uh, Vice, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist had a bad back. even said, he told them at the beginning, I may have to stand up occasionally, and it's not out of disrespect to the, uh, to the senators. Uh, but from time to time, then they realized he was getting fatigued. They would take a break in the proceedings, and he could step aside into the, into the president's room. He brought over um, the chief administrative officer for the, the Supreme Court as a, an assistant, uh, and, uh, but otherwise, it's just a matter of coming across the street to, uh, to preside. And will the court be in session while this is happening? I think it was the last time. I believe that they were in 99, and, yes. And what about the Senate? Will it be doing any other business while this is happening? Most likely not. Um, the, but, uh, again, it, it, the Senate can write its own rules and can do its own thing. And the Senate likes to operate on precedent. Uh, if it's by, if there's a precedent, then they can say, we've done it before, this is the way we should do it now. But, of course, the Constitution allows them to rewrite their rules when they want to. Uh, so it's always hard to predict what the U.S. Senate will do. Uh, the, they, the likelihood is they'll follow their what they did in the last time uh, and just suspend all the legislative business for the time of the trial. But you know, if they decide to do differently, they, they will. So let's move on to the trial phase. Um, based on past precedent, how long did the last ones take, and what might we expect? The Andrew Johnson trial lasted months, from March until May. Uh, newspaper reporters who covered the trial said that it was so hectic, and they would, it was so demanding, and the tensions ran so high that, uh, given a choice, they would much rather cover the, the Gettysburg battle again rather than the reconstruction and, and impeachment. Uh, it really wore people out, and it, it, it disillusioned a lot of people about the process, about both sides in the case, and it really uh, undermined a lot of faith in government, I think, the, that, that occasion. The Clinton trial was much more abridged. It went on from uh, mid-January to early February. Uh, even it was a long time, but not anywhere near as long as the Andrew Johnson. Uh, and uh, I don't think it surprised anybody at the end uh, as it came out. It, I don't think it disillusioned people quite the same way uh, that, it, uh, that the earlier one had. Uh, but uh, it, it focused a lot of attention. And the public is, it can both be very interested and really pay attention and get bored pretty quickly and lose interest and say, why are they doing this? And uh, uh, so one never knows exactly what the public opinion is going to be. There's certainly a lot more ways for the public to pay attention to at this time. Uh, coverage is, is complete. You're, you're not going to be shut out. In the case of the Andrew Johnson trial, so many people wanted to get into the Capitol that for the first time they had to print tickets to let you into the galleries. 
Uh, and uh, of course, we still print tickets, and we printed special tickets for the uh, for the Clinton impeachment trial. The Nixon trial would have had a TV camera if it had taken place, and of course, C-SPAN was in business when uh, when the Clinton trial took place. So, C-SPAN two viewers are very accustomed to the look of the Senate chamber. Will it look any different during the trial? Yes, it will look much more crowded. <laughs> uh, instead of the open well in front of the presiding officer, there will be two big tables: one for the House managers, one for the president's lawyers. Uh, the galleries will be packed, including the press gallery. Now, uh, whenever I go into the Senate chamber, I look over at the press gallery, and there may be two or three people sitting there, because, of course, they can watch the proceedings on television. They don't have to be there. Uh, when you go into an impeachment trial, every seat in the gallery is taken, and the press gallery is actually standing room only. People are packed in there. Uh, and for the Clinton trial, we had a whole new group of reporters show up, and they were Internet reporters. Many of them had absolutely never been in the U.S. Capitol building before, even though they covered Congress in their reporting. And so the press gallery actually asked me to take them on a tour through the building. So I had about 20 Internet reporters that I took around, showed them the various places, uh, and they went to work on the, on the, uh, the trial. Uh, the reporters who were there all the time complained that the Internet reporters were always taking their seats and talking on their phones and uh, you know, getting in the way, but they weren't regulars in the, in the gallery. And so there'll be a lot of people coming up to, the, to see an historical event who aren't going to be regulars. And the attention will be international as well as national. Exactly. be streaming, and uh, everyone will be watching. It's because they were in 1999, but again, the ability to do this is so much uh, greater now. Right now, uh, organizations like ours or any other news organization must have credentials from the House and Senate to cover events. With this widespread interest, how do you manage all of the people that would like to cover, all the organizations that would like to cover? This is very difficult to get uh, find enough space. So this is The galleries are actually run by standing committees of correspondence, the, so the, the press themselves elect people to rep decide what the rules are going to be and issue the, the press passes. It's not the government deciding who gets in. It's, it's the press deciding who gets in. Uh, but they'll do everything possible to accommodate as many people as possible. Uh, and there'll be overflow rooms, uh, definitely. Uh, uh, I'm sure they'll be making space in the basement for people as well. They'll have to decide where TV cameras can be placed outside the chamber. And of course, these days, everybody can film with an with a electronic device wherever they are. The Senate, unlike the House, has a rule against using electronic devices in the Senate chamber. Uh, one hopes everybody will live up to that as well. Uh, but um, uh, yes, the, the, there'll be uh, lots of problems trying to figure out how to fit everybody who wants to be there into the building with limited space. So no senators will be tweeting from the floor of the trial? No. Uh, the, uh, the, there's a little sign before you going into the Senate chamber reminding them that electronic devices are not permitted. Now, from time to time, uh, the parliamentarian has told me that uh, they've gotten complaints from viewers of C-SPAN that the presiding officer, the senator, is asleep. And they'll have to send a message, no, the presiding officer is actually tweeting under the desk right now. Uh, they're not supposed to, but uh, senators are you know, trying to maximize their time. Surreptitious tweeting. How about that? So with regard to those tickets for the public, uh, especially people here are thinking they want to be part of history, uh, they will be in, I'm sure, high demand. So how are those allocated, and how long can you stay when you have a ticket? Uh, the, once you get into the chamber, you can stay uh, as long as you can tolerate it. Uh, uh, they, they may be, I'm not sure if they'll have any section that rotates on a 
20-minute basis or not. But usually, uh, once you have a ticket, you go in. But uh, usually, again, everything is done through members' offices, and so probably the senators will be distributing the uh, the tickets. The House will get some, probably. The uh, there'll be all there'll be varieties of ways of doing it. But in most cases, dealing with the Congress, the best thing to do is to contact your member of Congress if you're interested in getting a ticket. What portion of the trial will be in open session, and what will be behind closed doors? Almost everything probably will be in open session. Again, they they haven't written the rules for this uh, impeachment yet. Uh, they, there really is a push to make everything as public as possible. The one uh, exception in 1999 was the last part of the proceedings in which the senators meeting in the current chamber closed the doors, turned off the cameras, and each stood up and gave their summations of how they were going to vote and what they thought is sort of a pooling the jury, essentially. Uh, and that those were off the record, and they were uh, in closed door session. Some senators at the time complained and tried to open the doors. Uh, they couldn't convince the rest of the senators to go along with that. And then when the um, uh, proceedings were over, uh, the, the, they published all of the speeches, essentially. The, I'm not sure if any senator declined to have their speech published, but, uh, but it's a very thick book on... Um, uh, of proceedings. The off-the-record speeches were, in fact, yes, published. Exactly. You brought the book with uh, us. Can you, yes, can you show this? This surprised me that there was a special book for the impeachment. There process. are actually four volumes on the impeachment, uh, and this one is just the speeches that the senators gave in that final closed-door session. Interesting. So who publishes this? This is a government printing office uh, publication. It's published like any other uh, record of the Senate and looks very much like all the other records. And by the way, the uh, the, all the four volumes were dedicated to Scott Bates, who was the uh, the, the clerk of the, the Senate at the time, the uh, uh, man who called the row uh, and all of, through all of this, who unfortunately was killed in a hit-and-run accident uh, while he was uh, uh, in the middle of the trial. Mm. And so they stopped and draped his chair with black and had flowers on the, on the table. It was a, uh, you know, his, everybody went to his funeral. Uh, he was a really beloved first person in the Senate, uh, and it added to the pull, of the, it added to the gravity and the solemnity of the occasion. Uh, and it was a very nice gesture that they dedicated the publication to him uh, afterwards. So let's move on to the, the outcomes of this. So the Senate then votes uh, on this, and the vote will be in open session. Mm -hmm. So the let's return to the Constitution for what it says about this. It says the president, the vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. You said at the outset that there really wasn't a great deal of definition around those terms. Mm -hmm. So what is the role right. of the prosecutors in this case? Well, the prosecutors have to convince uh, the senators that uh, the offense, the, the level of offense rises to an impeachable offense. Uh, and that's what they spent most of their time talking about in the Clinton case. The question is, this was... he. He lied under oath. He'd had an affair, uh, and it was a personal disgrace. But does it rise to the level of, of an impeachable offense? The, when, the, when the authors of the Constitution were, were working out impeachment, they started off with bribery and treason. Everybody agreed on that. Then the question was, can you list all the other possible crimes that, uh, that might be an impeachable offense? 
Uh, and I once I was at the J.P. Morgan Library in New York, and they had a copy of the working draft of the Constitution that the delegates were working from. And there was an empty space after high crimes and misdemeanors. They were clearly trying to think about what to use. And so they tapped into British common law, and they came up with a British term of high crimes and misdemeanors, which suggests something very serious but very amorphous, so that um, something that you haven't anticipated might fit into that. It's up to the prosecutors to convince the senators that a high crime or misdemeanor has been committed and that this is a serious impeachable offense. So when a senator casts their vote, they are doing what? They're deciding whether or not they've been convinced that the, uh, the, the crime uh, fits the constitutional requirement. Senator Arlen Specter, a senator from Pennsylvania, voted uh, uh, not, not to, uh, proven rather than not guilty or guilty. It rather confused the clerks who were taking the role at that stage, but uh, it was an old Scottish version of how do you say that, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced, but uh, you haven't proven your case. Uh, but essentially, you're voting guilty or innocent of the of the charges. Uh, and again, uh, you, it has to be two-thirds of the senators to actually remove a person from office. Uh, there's no other penalty that comes with it. I mean, you, there's no jail term or whatever. The, you might be tried separately for the crime. Uh, remember, President Ford pre pardoned President Nixon just in case any uh, legal actions were brought against him. They didn't want the president to go to, into trial or possibly be in prison. Uh, but impeachment doesn't re re do that. It just re immediately removes that person from office, and then the vice president of the United States would be sworn in to take the position. Just to get it on the record, let's put that language from the Constitution here to, to close this out. So judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office, disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Right. So uh, then if, if the president is acquitted, then it becomes a political impact. And you mm -hmm. referred to that earlier. So let's go through the cases and talk about the political impact. Yes, because uh, there's definitely a political weight to being impeached. Uh, uh, Andrew Johnson would have liked to have been nominated. By that point, he, the Democrats were his party, and so he would have been interested in taking the nomination. Uh, he didn't get it. Uh, he did, by the way, get elected to the Senate again. He came back to the Senate uh, in the 1870s and was, you know, uh, unabashed in his in his support of the, his own policies uh, and served a very short term uh, in the in the United States Senate. Uh, President Nixon, of course, was uh, forced to resign from office uh, and uh, spent the rest of his life trying to justify himself, wrote a lot of books, uh, gave long television interviews, uh, but uh, leaving office was a, it was a terrible burden for him. Uh, President Clinton uh, finished his term, uh, continued to serve in the middle of the impeachment trial, came up and gave a State of the Union message as if nothing was going on. I think rather surprised pretty much everybody on, on Capitol Hill. And, and his standing in the public opinion polls went up. Uh, the likelihood is that the, his impeachment did not help his vice president, Gore, in, in his election uh, and um, uh, probably complicated his, his uh, attempts to run for president himself and probably complicated his wife's attempts to run for president herself. Uh, and it is a stain that uh, 
that persists. Uh, Senator Byrd made a statement about that. I was, when I was reading through the, the volume, I was just struck. By, Senator Byrd uh, was a great institutionalist. Uh, he believed in the Senate, and he defended the Senate. Uh, and he was really torn. He, he, was, he despised the, the President uh, Clinton's behavior, but he didn't think that uh, it rose to an impeachable offense. But he wanted the senators to take it as seriously as possible. But he also didn't want the White House to celebrate, because uh, he thought the vote in the end was a foregone conclusion. He said, let there be no preening and posturing and gloating on the White House lawn uh, this time when the voting is over and done. The House of Representatives has already inflicted upon the president the greatest censure, the greatest condemnation that the House can inflict upon any president, and it is called impeachment. That was an indelible judgment which can never be withdrawn. It will run throughout the pages of history, and its deep stain can never be eradicated from the eyes and memories of man. God can forgive us all, but history may not. So as we close, as an eyewitness to the 1999 process, what is a prevailing memory of what that experience was like? I was very proud of the U.S. Senate at the time. Um, I, I thought the U.S. Senate rose to the occasion. It was given a very difficult assignment. Uh, the senators were very torn about it, uh, and they did it with great amount of dignity and restraint, uh, and they made the institution stand a little taller afterwards. And I think that's uh, something, perhaps, that taking that oath of office and seeing the uh, oath of, as a juror and seeing the chief justice there helps to add a bit of solemnity that can get senators beyond the day-to-day -day polarized politics that they're used to dealing with. You bear the title uh, historian emeritus. How many years did you spend in the United States Senate Historian's Office? I was there for almost 40 years, uh, and uh, I enjoyed every day of it. I, I was there from very close to the end of the, um, the Nixon period. I came in 1976, uh, right on through to, uh, uh, to, the, to the current day. And so um, uh, I've seen a lot happen in the Senate. Do you miss being there while this is going on now? Uh, yes and no. I'm, uh, my successors are doing a wonderful job. They're carrying on. Uh, I remember, in particular, during the impeachment trial, uh, Betty Cohen had just joined our office, and uh, Dick Baker and I uh, told her, it'll be quiet. The Senate's going into recess. Uh, you'll have a chance to really get, learn on the job. And a week later, the House impeached the president, and our phone began to ring. And in fact, our phones rang steadily. It was before the Internet uh, really made it easy to do research, so people would call us uh, with messages. And within a week, Betty was fielding questions on censure and impeachment and uh, going back into the records. It was a great way to learn uh, trial by fire. It's sort of like being thrown into the deep end of the pool and forced to swim. Uh, but uh, I, I'm glad I don't have to go through that again. Uh, I think uh, that uh, once was enough. <laughs> well, Donald Ritchie, Senate uh, historian emeritus, thank you so much for this hour and giving us really an understanding of what the Senate is about to undertake over the next few weeks. Appreciate your time. Thank you. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.